You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Today's teaching text is Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and do you not know the things that have happened here, there, in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But he had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of the women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they, there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Excellent. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we do thank you so much for your word, which we know is active and living. Uh, we pray that right now that you would, through your spirit, take this word Drive it deep into our hearts. Use it to transform us from the inside out uh, for our good and your glory. And it's in Christ's name that I ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Last summer, I was invited to a retreat slash birthday bash in Cherokee Village uh, for one of our former pastors, Chuck Schwinn, who actually took a job recently in Texas. And like only Chuck could do, I mean, who does this for someone's birthday party? He gave us pre-work, a pre-assignment. 
And he said, what I want you men to do, he had like 10 different pastors from all over the country that kind of flew in for this. Like, I want you to all find an object from your home that summarizes the state of your own soul. And as a pastor, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this. I was like, I don't really know how you know the state of your own soul. I could probably tell you the state of your soul, but I wasn't really sure what the state of my own soul was. And in my shame, rather than calling Chuck and just asking him, how do you do this? I did what any pastor with a master's and a Bible degree would do. I got on Google and I just searched, how do you know the state of your own soul? I began to look at some of the results and eventually I came across a First Baptist Church in Minnesota, where for just $3, you could learn the state of your soul. And I thought, what a deal, you know? Uh, so I got on there, I ran the credit card, and I answered the questions, and I submitted to the results, and they gave me one word that, same, that summed up the state of my soul, which was the word disappointed. Um, now, I was disappointed when I saw the answer was disappointment. I thought maybe it'd say like holy, or passionate, or complete, but that's not what it said. So the state of your soul, a lot of the answers you submitted is disappointed. And at first I thought that can't be true. Um, but then I started thinking about it and I began to process it more honestly before the Lord. And I thought, you know, actually, I think that is true. And it was true because, you know, when I started following Jesus, I remember I was 20 years old and the one word people would have used then to describe me was passionate, man. Like God had changed my life and I wanted to join him in changing the world. And what I really believed at that point was as long as I am obedient to God, if I will just follow Jesus the best I know how, then great things will always happen in me and through me. In some ways, without even realizing it, what happened is I had adopted the prosperity gospel, a gospel that I preach against and yet believed that basically if I do X, Y, and Z, my life will, for the most part, turn out exactly the way that I want it to. As long as I just kind of walk this narrow path, I'm pretty much, as a result, going to have a perfect marriage, and then eventually we'll have perfect kids, and then I'll go on and I'll plant a church, and because we're going to do it the right way... We're going to pretty much have a perfect church with perfect people who always completely apply everything that we're teaching on here and do everything that God asked them to do. And then we're going to go live as a family of missionary servants. And when we preach the gospel, for the most part, everyone's going to believe. And within three or four years, we will have changed the world. These were unspoken expectations that were in my heart. Expectations that honestly, I did not even know that I had until they were not met. And when they were not met because life did not turn out the way that I thought it would as a result of my obedience and my sacrifice for Jesus, I found myself disappointed. I was disappointed with myself, I was disappointed with others, and I was even disappointed with God. And my guess is this morning that maybe for some of you, if you can be honest, you can relate. Some of you have had moments in your own life where you're like, okay, God, like I did my part. Like I held up to my end of the bargain, but it doesn't seem like you held up to your end of the bargain. Some of you are like, I have read the marriage books and yet my marriage still fell apart. I read the parenting books and went to the parenting seminars and my kids still didn't turn out the way that I wanted. I got involved in the missional community and in the DNA, I did the stuff the pastors all encouraged me to do. I even took care of myself. Not just spiritually, but even physically. I would eat right, and I would exercise, and I would rest. And yes, I spent time in prayer and silence and solitude. I even fasted, Lord. And yet, despite all of that, for some of you, you sit here this morning, and your life has not at all turned out the way that you hoped that it would. 
someone or something has let you down. The dreams that you held in your heart did not come to fruition. And as a result, you sit here, maybe even right now, discouraged and disappointed. And this is actually where we find the disciples in Luke 24. And just to set the context for you, this is post-resurrection. Jesus came and lived a perfect sinless life that none of us have ever lived. He went to the cross and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And he has now risen from the grave. He has conquered sin, death, and hell. But these disciples don't know that. To their knowledge, Jesus is still in the grave. And as a result, they are disappointed. And we find in verse 21, if you look with me, their disappointment is captured with these words. We had hoped that he was the one who is going to redeem Israel. In other words, we had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was going to rescue us from the oppression of the Roman Empire. We had hoped that he was going to make our lives better than it was before. But now, because to their knowledge, Jesus is still dead, the hope they once had has been buried with their Savior. And as a result, these disciples we see in this passage, they are melancholy, They are confused and they are aimless. In verse 17, we see they are melancholy. It says they stood still, their faces downcast. They are confused. In verse 23 and 24, they're receiving these competing reports about what has happened to Jesus' body. They know the tomb is empty, but they have no idea why. And therefore, we see... In verse 13, they are aimless. They are walking away from Jerusalem. And you're like, why does that matter? Because that means they're walking away from the temple. They're walking away from the place where God's presence dwelt. And they're walking where? Towards Emmaus. And Emmaus represents a city of escape. What they're doing on their way to Emmaus is they're literally, they are trying to put some distance between themselves and the hope they once had in this man named Jesus who they believe is now dead. So what I want you to realize is because they have been disappointed by God, they're trying to now distance themselves from God. And maybe this is where some of you are this morning. Because of your own disappointments, you have begun to slowly but surely lose hope in God. And therefore, as a result, you begin to distance yourself from God. And like the disciples, you're on your own version of the road to Emmaus. And therefore, as a result of that, you are melancholy. You are confused and you are aimless. And this should actually come as no surprise to us. Um, As neurologists and psychologists alike have pointed out, when your hope begins to fade, your life will unravel. Uh, Viktor Frankl, um, in his book, A Man's Search for Meaning, one of my favorite books I've ever read, he tells a story about his life in a Nazi concentration camp, a camp where his friends and his family were put to death. And in one section, he's talking about all of these humans, these men, women, and children who have been tortured and then eventually are eliminated by German soldiers. And he begins to kind of share lessons he learned from all of this time he spent in the concentration camp. And what he points out is this. He says, the people who were able to survive the ghastly living conditions in Auschwitz, the people who were able to remain the healthiest and the happiest, even in the midst of great suffering and death, he says, listen to this, were not the biggest, strongest, wealthiest, or most educated, but those who were healthiest and happiest were those who had hope. That is so interesting to me in a lot of the cultural moment we are living in. You've, you've heard the stats, you've read the stats. The suicide rates in the United States have climbed by 25% in the last 15 years. 25%. 
We have more money, more options than ever before, but we are sadder than ever before. Mental health, uh, mental health illness is through the roof. Psychologists are now using words like epidemic for anxiety and depression. This is why antidepressants have become, listen to this, a multi-billion dollar industry with the best-selling drug in the U.S. right now being an antipsychotic, which sells over $7 billion worth annually. So needless to say, like when it comes to happiness, we're not doing too well as Americans, And I believe that this is because, according to Frankel and other psychologists and even writers of the New Testament, the reason many of us are so unhappy is because we've either put our hope in the wrong things or we have lost our hope altogether. And this is what we see with the disciples in Luke 24. They're melancholy, they're confused, they're now aimlessly wandering away from God, and yet look at this, isn't this beautiful? It is in their wandering, in their state of hopelessness, as they're walking away from God, that God comes and walks with them. In verse 15, we read, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Isn't it good to know today that even whenever you walk away from God, that he will continue to pursue you? Is it good to know that today? Okay, for a few of you, good. Because God is merciful and gracious and compassionate, and abounding in steadfast love. And even whenever we chase after the things of the world, God continues to chase after us. The disciples are on the road to Emmaus. They're trying to escape their problems. They're not looking for God, but God shows up. And at first, they don't recognize him. They don't realize that the man who is now walking alongside them is the resurrected Jesus. And this is why when Jesus says, hey, what are you talking about? In verse 18, if you look with me, the disciple responds, are you the only one who does not know what has happened the past few days, right? Jesus is the only one who knows exactly what has happened the past few days. But because they had no category in their mind for a Messiah that could suffer and die, there's no category in the disciples' mind here for a Messiah that could rise from the dead. And so these guys are totally clueless. They do not get it. But look at this. Rather than Jesus shaming them, he says, let's have a little Bible study. And in verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are, And how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And so Jesus, basically what he does here is he tries to show these men how all of the scripture, all the Old Testament has been pointing to him. And how according to the prophets, what they have been saying all along is that the Messiah actually had to travel through suffering in order to get to glory. How in order for the Messiah to rescue us and redeem us, what the Bible has been pointing to is the fact that Jesus actually had to suffer and die. That he had to bleed and be buried. That's what he's getting at here. That God had to actually use what we see as the greatest disappointment the world has ever known to bring about the greatest salvation the world has ever known. And you would think at this point, by, by Jesus showing them the scriptures and explaining that to them, they would finally realize who they were talking to, that this is the risen Messiah. However, think about this, for the rest of the day, they walk with Jesus and have no idea who he is. A whole day spent with the risen Jesus, and they're completely unaware that they are with the risen Jesus. But then in verse 30, Jesus has a meal with them. Just as he did with the disciples before he was crucified. Jesus breaks bread with them. And in verse 31, we read, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Notice, by the way, it does not say they opened their own eyes. 
Uh, we can have a whole sermon on this. Does not say they opened their own eyes. Their eyes were opened by God. We need to know that just as Jesus physically would give sight to the blind, spiritually speaking, this is what God has to do for every single person who eventually puts their faith in him. God, through his power and his grace, is the one who opens our eyes to see him as he really is. This is why in Ephesians 1 verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened, or your translation may say enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. These disciples had no hope because they could not see, and they could not see because God had yet to open their eyes. But when God opened their eyes, they see Jesus as he really is. But then, as soon as they realize it's the resurrected Jesus, he disappears. And I don't really know what to do with that other than just to let you know you cannot control God. And Jesus will constantly remind you, you're not in control of your own spiritual journey, I am. Jesus disappears, and then in verse 32, look at this. Were not our hearts burning, they asked one another. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I wonder how many times have I just been in the presence of God and been completely unaware of it. Were not our hearts burning as we've walked with the risen Jesus? We were with him the whole time. He was with us the whole day. And we didn't even know it. Then in verse 33, they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together. And they said, it is true. The Lord has risen. That is a beautiful picture, by the way, of repentance. They were heading one way away from Jerusalem, away from God, but then their eyes are open. They see Jesus as he really is, and they turn back immediately to Jerusalem. They proclaim the gospel of the risen Jesus, and then the story goes on. Now, there's a lot in there we could pull out before our purpose is the day. I just want to focus on that line again. We had hoped. We had hoped. And the reason I want to focus here in the time we have left is because I know that in this room and those watching online, that there are many of you who can relate to those three words. Some of you here can say, I had hoped I was going to have a better marriage. I had hoped I could have children. I hoped I would have gotten that promotion. I would have hoped God would have freed me from that addiction a little bit sooner, that he would have fixed this issue or answered that prayer. However, because the prayer has not been answered, because the issue was not fixed, the relationship was not restored, or the healing never came, or the job didn't pan out, today you can relate with those disciples. You sit here and you are disappointed. And what I want you to see this morning is when you find yourself in this place, when you find yourself disappointed with yourself or with others or with God, there is one healthy response to your disappointment. And it is, in the words of the Apostle Paul, to learn how to grieve with hope. To grieve. When disappointment comes, you need to grieve. You need to give yourself permission to be sad about what it is that you lost. Disappointment, listen, actually does not have to be your enemy. It can be your friend. It can show you what it is that you had been putting hope in, what it is that you had been hoping for that did not come to fruition. And so whenever there's disappointment, you can grieve. But the Apostle Paul says, make sure that when you grieve, you do not do it without hope. Now, let me be clear here. 
Hope is not the same as positivity. Uh, Dr. Kate Baller, who's a professor at Duke University, she used to passionately proclaim the prosperity gospel, but then she got diagnosed with terminal cancer in her 30s, and it shifted her whole theology, which tends to happen when you believe the prosperity gospel. And so um, she actually, I think, ended up surviving, um, and, and, and she you know, has, has written much about kind of how her theology changed as a result of her diagnosis. And in an article, she says this, the idea that we're all supposed to be positive all the time has become an American obsession. It gives us momentum and purpose to feel like the best is yet to come. But the problem is when it becomes a kind of poison in which it expects that people who are suffering, which at some point will be all of us, are somehow always supposed to find the silver lining or not speak realistically about their circumstances. The main problem is that this adds shame to your suffering by just requiring everyone to be happy all the time. If you find yourself disappointed this morning, if your life has not, you know, it's not what you expected it would be. The invitation from God this morning is not just be positive. The invitation from God is not just turn your frown upside down, but rather the invitation from the resurrected Jesus is to learn how to grieve your disappointments with hope. And as Christians, listen to me very carefully. Our hope is not in the fact that nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. That life somehow when you follow Jesus is always just going to be up and to the right. Jesus never promised you that kind of life. In fact, if you read the scriptures, he promised you the exact opposite. Again, quote, this is from Jesus, in this life you will have many troubles. In other words, in this life, Jesus says, you should expect suffering and you should expect loss. As M, uh, Scott Peck said in his book, because we live in a fallen world, listen to this, guys, troubles the rule. A life free from trouble is actually the exception to the rule. And therefore, because that is true, all of us in this life will experience disappointment. Some of those disappointments will be small, right? Small losses that we get over quickly. As y'all know, I'm a soccer coach. I coach uh, my daughter's soccer team, 10, uh, U10 team, bunch of little, you know, nine and 10 year old girls. And uh, yesterday we had a couple of our best players out in our final game of the season in a team that we've beat this year. We lost eight to one. Uh, it was a terrible game. I mean, from start to finish. And honestly, like it was a disappointing end to the season, but it was a small disappointment. Like I'm already over it. Like there are little small disappointments like that that we experience every single day in life, but then there are disappointments that hit you so hard that it leaves you feeling like you have been punched in the soul. These are losses that are so significant that even though you eventually can get through it, you never actually get over it. I was talking with Darius just yesterday, his niece, two-year-old niece, just got diagnosed with leukemia. That's a significant disappointment. My wife and I, uh, I'm a family of my kids too, just not my wife, uh, our whole family is about to move into a house uh, a few blocks over from here. And this past week we were cleaning out our attic and we came across some old pictures and one of the pictures was Seth and Mallory. Um, Seth and Mallory were friends of ours. They actually met in the college ministry when I was a college pastor. I performed their wedding. Uh, they moved off after the wedding to Little Rock. But then in 2017, they moved back to Paragold, and they were so excited. We were excited. Um, Mallory was pregnant with our third kid. Um, Seth had just gotten a new job. They were moving uh, back to be with their family. But then on Christmas morning, just days after they had moved back, they actually attended our Christmas Eve service that night. 
But on Christmas morning, I received a call from the hospital at 5.15 a.m. that Mallory, along with her 17-week-old baby, had suddenly died. And I remember sitting in the hospital with, with Seth, and it's like, what do you say on Christmas morning to this guy who just lost his wife and his child? And, and I sat with him for a couple hours, I go back to the house and I open presents with my kids and I go back to the hospital because the hospital asked me to come and get Mallory's wedding ring. I remember sitting in the hospital parking lot and I'm holding Mallory's ring. It's the first time I've held it since her wedding day. And I remember just asking like, man, how is this possible? Like on Christmas morning, just eight years after I'd officiated their wedding, how is it possible that this phrase, so death do us part, has already become a reality? Life is beautiful, but it is hard, and it is filled with heartbreaking disappointments. And this is why, please hear me, at the end of the day, our ultimate hope cannot be rooted in our spouse. It cannot be rooted in your kids. It cannot be rooted in a pastor or a church cannot be rooted in the idea that somehow, some season of life, we're going to have no trouble on this side of eternity. But rather, if we're going to endure disappointment, if rather than letting disappointment make us cynical or skeptical and just crush the life out of us, we have to make sure our ultimate hope is rooted in God. And to put your hope in God, I think, means at least three things. It means to put your hope in the fact that, one, God is making all things new. One day, we're going to be in a world free from pain and loss. There will be a world where there's no disappointment ever again. A world where, in the words of the Apostle Paul, all the sufferings of this present world won't even be worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. Tish Warren once said, everything in the end will be okay, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. Hope that we have is not that one day the suffering that we've experienced will be explained, but it will be defeated because of Christ. All sad things will come untrue. And to put your hope in God means you put your hope in that reality. Secondly, to put your hope in God means that you put your hope in the fact that he is with us right now. Right now. David says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest and most disappointing valleys, I will fear no evil because you are with me. That is a promise that you can cling to as well, that because Jesus has sent you his Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you, he will be with you every step of the way, and there is nothing, listen, nothing that can happen to you that will ever separate you from his love. Third, to put your hope in God means to put your hope in this reality. God will not waste your disappointments. God will not waste your disappointments. Listen to me. You cannot trust that God will keep bad things from happening to you. You cannot trust that God will keep bad things from happening to you, but what you can trust is he will work all bad things together for your good. Which means when the bad things happen, when the pain enters into your life, when you are disappointed and it feels like, man, something bad has just happened from out of left field, it may feel random and purposeless according to Romans 8 and other passages of Scripture, those who hope in the Lord, you can know that there is nothing actually that comes into your life apart from sifting through the hands of an all-powerful and loving God who will work all things together for your good according to his purpose. Guys, there are actually no accidents. There are no mistakes. God is not like a first responder 
remember whenever I was in ninth grade and my brother had a seizure and I had to perform CPR on him and it was it totally took me by surprise. I had to respond to the situation. I didn't know it was coming and I just had to jump. That's not the way God is. God's not up there like, ooh, I didn't see that coming. What am I going to do now? It's not the way God is. God is always in control. He's always good. He's always working out every single thing that comes into your life to conform you more into the image of Jesus, which means more into a person who will, even as a result of your suffering, one day experience greater joy, peace, and love, if not in this life, than certainly in the next. And so a lot of this, when you find yourself disappointed, rather than stuffing your pain or numbing your pain, grieve it. Grieve your disappointments, but make sure you grieve it with hope. And if you're like on a practical level, how do we do this? Well, there's no perfect technique, but I did find something. Um, this is from Ronald Roheiser. It's a method that I think is, is fantastic. It actually corresponds with the Eastertide season in the church calendar, which is the part that we're actually in right now as a church. We're in Eastertide season. I don't know if you knew that. But in his book, Holy Longing, which I read years ago, he writes about these five stages of Eastertide in the church calendar that we can follow to help us grieve with hope. And so here are the five different stages. He says there's Good Friday, which is when we get in touch with our grief. There's Easter, which is when we get in touch with our hope. There's the 40 days where the risen Jesus appears to his disciples. And this is where we kind of get reoriented and realigned around this new reality. There's the ascension where Jesus physically left his disciples for heaven. And then there's the Pentecost where he sends the spirit so his presence can come and live inside of us. And he uses these five stages basically as a pattern of how we can grieve our disappointments with hope. And so here's what he says. When disappointment happens, number one, name your death. Name your death. Name what actually was lost. Two, claim your birth. Become aware of the new thing that God might be doing. Three, he says, grieve what you have lost and adjust to the new reality. Four, do not cling to the old. Let it ascend. And five, accept the blessing that God wants you to give in this new season. And then you can see on the slide, we already have it up for you. If you're like on a practical level, how do I walk through those five steps? Well, here's what I would do. What I did this past week, get you a sheet of paper. Or get you a, a journal or use this on your phone. Take a picture of this if you want, or it's actually on the YouVersion notes. But begin to answer these questions under each heading. Under name the deaths. What is it that I actually have lost? Why am I so disappointed right now in my life? What did not come to fruition? Two, under claim your birth. Is there something new God is wanting to do in my life? As a result of this death, there's an old cliche, when God closes one door, he opens another. There's a reason why that's a cliche. Because it's true. Through death, God brings about life. And so God, what is the new life you want to bring about through this great disappointment? Three, under grieving your losses and adjusting to this new reality, God, show me how to stop living in a fantasy world to embrace this new normal that's in my life. Maybe I didn't ask for it, but it's now the new normal. Teach me how to embrace this. Four, do not cling to the old rather than living in the past. God, show me how to actually give up the old to release the past so I can embrace the new, which leads to number five, accepting this new life with God where you can begin to ask God, God, what is the new thing that you want me to receive? What is the new blessing or blessings that you have for me in this season that I can receive and celebrate? And again, like this is not a perfect technique. I just wanted to share with you at least one practical one so that if you find yourself in disappoint, a disappointing season, you can learn how to grieve with hope. And that is the whole point of this. Like the disciples, we want to go from a place of hopelessness to being hopeful. And as a result, we want to go from walking alone towards Emmaus to actually turning back to spreading the message of hope. This is what I long for as a church. 
that this would become true of us, that we would increasingly become a people of hope, that in the midst of our losses and our great disappointments, that we would not become cynical, we would not become skeptical, but that we would be filled with a contagious Christ-centered hope that would spread from inside our bodies through the nooks and crannies of this entire city and beyond. With that, I'm gonna invite our band to come forward and those preparing communion to come forward. And I just wanna, as you are, kind of pray this blessing over you from Romans. This is from the Apostle Paul. I'm gonna pray this over you and then after this, you can come forward to receive communion. We got a station up here in the front where we have servers who will tear off a piece of bread which represents the perfect life of Christ. The juice represents his blood shed for you and they'll tear off the bread, dip it in the juice and give it to you. If you don't feel comfortable receiving communion this way, we have disposable cups in the back. If you're here and you're not a Christian, rather than receiving this, we ask that you do receive Jesus, that you give your life to him. And if you have more questions about what that looks like, I would love to connect with you. But I want you to stand with me and here's just the prayer. I'll pray over you. And then the band will lead us in one more song and then as you're ready, you can come forward. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.